Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hiya. Um, so we're going to do a few bits from the Bible. So the first one is from Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 to 12, and it's on page 587 of your Bible. Uh, The whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. And then we're going to turn to page 590. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And now we're going to turn to page 671 for Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius' son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of your unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants and his prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving the attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, For the Lord our God is righteous in everything that he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought our people out of Israel with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all, to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. 
For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because you are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will, be rebuilt, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come, who will, come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Until the end, that is decreed is poured out on him. Well done, Lindsay. Hey, not an easy reading. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we're about to hear and reflect on a man who uh, knows something about prayer that I don't. And I think we don't. So teach us from this man's prayer how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want today to talk about stability. Stability in an unstable world. It feels to me, and maybe I'm getting old, but we feel more unstable than we did 10, 20 years ago. We feel more uncertain, more fragile as a culture. The pressures, the pulls, the responsibility of life upon us. The intensity of life makes us feel unstable. And it's not just personal, it's political. Our world feels less secure, doesn't it? There's war in Ukraine, there's rising cost of living, there's the fallout of Brexit, there's uh, environmental concerns. Are we beyond repair now? There's the pandemic that shook us. And there's technology. Have we created a monster we can't control? Is social media going to undermine democracy and, and public civil debate, or a debate in the public sphere? It feels unstable, our world. So how do you find stability? A man who lived through many moments of great instability was Daniel. Personally, of course, his his friends in the fiery furnace, himself in the lion's den. Year after year, decade after decade, though, he faced political turmoil as a tyrannical or chaotic ruler. People like Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar made decisions that were intensely Uh, uh, destabilizing to his life and those around him and not to mention the instability that we looked at many times being taken as a teenager out of his homeland to live as a resident alien 
in Babylon. If anyone was allowed to say that life was an intense, unpredictable roller coaster, it was Daniel. And yet we've seen throughout the book, he was a man of poise, a man of calm, a man of courage, wisdom, balance. He had a center of gravity. He had an equilibrium. He knew how to center himself when all around him was losing its head. He could keep his, as someone said. Nothing unnerved him. What was the secret to Daniel's balance and stability? Prayer. He was a man stabilized in prayer. We saw that in chapter 2. Prayer was his center of gravity. The king threatens to kill him and all the wise men. Daniel's first response, hold a corporate prayer meeting, Daniel 2. We saw it when Sharon took us to chapter 6 and, and the decree which meant him facing the lions. Even though he should not have prayed for saving his life, what do we read now? Daniel, when he learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem three times a day. He got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he'd done before. Do you see? He's a resident alien. He lived in Babylon, but he lived for Zion. He was on his knees in Babylon, but his eyes were out the window to Jerusalem. He served faithfully in Babylon, but his center of gravity, an eternal city, another city, a city that Abraham looked forward to, whose builder and designer was God. He was a man stabilized in prayer. In chapter nine, we get to understand what his prayer life must have been like. Now, if there's anything that's going to destabilize you, it is Babylon, because Babylon has two main tactics for the people of God. The first one is intimidation. It threatens you. Daniel and his three friends have been intimidated on a number of occasions. Their life and their livelihood was in threat. Right now, if you live as a Christian in one of these countries, you don't know if you can meet safely today. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran and India, intimidation of Babylon. Even for us in our small way in Dublin, Babylon wants to silence us, doesn't it? Keep you from raising your head above the parapet, threaten you. You can't say that in our culture. But I think there's a more powerful tactic that Babylon has, and it's seduction. It wants to entice you. On a number of occasions, we've read different kings have said to Daniel, you can have fame, you can have glory, you can have power, you can have riches. And actually, on a number of occasions, he actually got those things. He could easily have settled down, couldn't he, into a comfortable, compromised life of wealth and political power. And this is the tactic, friends, of Babylon in the West. Just a quiet compromise, nice, comfortable life. You don't deny your faith, but your faith doesn't really make demands. It doesn't cost you. You make a home in Babylon, but I'm loyal to God, but I'm very settled here, thank you. And we've seen the whole way through, there's then two missteps that we can make as believers as we feel the intimidation or we feel the seduction. The first misstep, particularly if you are feeling intimidated, is I'm just going to separate from Babylon. I can't take it. It's too threatening. I'm just going to find my little bubble where no one threatens me. There's no intimidation because everyone's a Christian. Assimilate, uh, uh, separation. But then if I'm enticed, do you know what? I quite like being enticed, so I'm just going to assimilate. I'm just going to join in. 
Can you see, friends, the powers that are at work when you live in Babylon as a resident alien, pulling, derailing, destabilizing? Every day, these are powers that are at work. And we've seen Daniel, the, 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 the theme sentence of the, uh, of the series was a resident alien who served. He remained loyal to God, yet he remained a servant of the culture. He lived in Babylon without Babylon living in him. How do you do that? I cry out, how do we do that? You're stabilized in prayer. So we're going to learn three things about being a resident alien in prayer. Pray the scriptures, verse 1 to 3. Pray for God's glory, verses 4 to 19. Pray aware of God's greater purposes. Verses 1 to 3, pray the scriptures. In verse 3, we learn that Daniel went into a serious time of prayer. It involved petition, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He was focused in his prayer. What led him to pray? Verse 2 says, In the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So Daniel has his Bible open. And as he has his Bible open, he reads Jeremiah 25 and 29, and it says that the, the exile is going to last 70 years. And I don't know if Daniel was a mathematician, but he did some maths. And he says, well, I was a teenager when I went into Babylon. That was about 60 years ago. So we're coming up to seven. Wait a minute. God said that after 70, I better start praying for God to fulfill his promise as he spoke in his word. So what do we learn about prayer? Let me state it very clearly. When we pray, we pray with our Bibles open. That's what we learn. As I read my Bible, he says, I realized there's a promise in here. I'm going to, I better start claiming that promise right now. Basics of prayer, but do we forget it? Pray with your Bible open. Find a passage of scripture, meditate on it. Think what you can learn about the character of God. Find a promise of God. Think about an example from, I'm going to pray of what the Bible says. Let me give you a little example. Over many years, not just in this church, in lots of contexts, but let's take our church, city groups. We'll have a rich discussion for about an hour over a passage of scripture. And then at the end of the time, one of us, myself or someone leading, will say, turn around and, and pray for one another. And what happens is we find out one another's lies, what's going on, the ups and downs, and we share, and that's really important. We should do that. I'm, I'm commending that. And at the end of that, we turn, and then we just pray whatever's in our hearts based on what the person said. And it's as if the whole hour of meditating on the scripture does not then inform the prayer that I pray based on that person's circumstance. Biblical prayer, friends, is to find out what's going on in someone's life and feel deeply for them and then take the Bible and say, I've got a promise for you. I'm going to pray it for you. I've got a passage for you. I'm going to pray it. We don't have to get our knickers in a twist. I'm not saying we can't pray from our hearts. You get the principle. We pray with our Bibles open. So at the end of our city group discussion, let's, get our, let's keep our Bibles open. Hear from our brother or sisters. I'm going to pray for you in light of what we have just been studying. Again and again in the scriptures, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Nehemiah, Ezra, the apostles, they take the promises of God found in the scriptures and they pray them back to the God and they say, You've said you're going to do this, so do it. That's prayer. Pray with the Bible. Open, lay hold of the promises of God. Do you want to discover a, a center of gravity for your life? Pray with the Bible open. First thing, pray the scriptures. Secondly, pray 
for the glory of God, verses 4 to 19. Now, there's a number of things we notice about Daniel's prayer. It, it starts in verse 4 with the God's character. I prayed that the Lord, my, uh, and I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confess, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So notice that he prays first in light of God's character. He's powerful and he's loving. He's great and he's faithful. And you need a God that is both great and loving if you're going to pray. He can answer your prayers and he wants to answer your prayers. If you doubt the character of God as you go into prayer, you'll struggle to pray. So Daniel goes in, you're great and you're loving. If God is not sovereign over our sufferings, our lives, even our suffering, then why would I reach out to him? You know, as people have said, prayer is the, is the nerve that triggers the hand of the Almighty. I need to know he's almighty as I pray. Otherwise, why am I praying to him? But I also need to know that he's loving and he listens and he cares and he will act. Jesus taught us the same when he said, when you pray, start with your father's character and his glory. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So prayer starts with worship and affirmation of the God we pray to, and moves on in verse 5 to confession. We have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and your laws. And, and Daniel gives one of the great prayers of repentance. We don't have time to look at all the facets. But all these verses are prayers of <laughs> repentance. But you'll notice, just because I want to make my point again, verse 11, therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses. Verse 13, just as it was written, Daniel's got the Bible open and he's going, do you see that verse in Leviticus? Do you see that verse? We are receiving the punishment that it was said in your word. This is part of the covenant agreement God made with his people on Sinai that if they disobeyed him, the ultimate sign of his punishment would be exile. And Daniel knows his Bible and so he's praying the Bible back to God. He acknowledges that time and time again they'd simply refused to listen to the prophets who warned them. So prayer starts with the character of God and worship of who he is. It goes into confession and recognising our failure. And, and Katie led us so wonderfully a, a moment ago in similar ways. And then it moves to petition, verse 15 to 19. For God to restore the people, restore the city of Jerusalem, to bring them out of their shame and desolation, to gather them from the nation where they've been scattered, to forgive them their many sins and to rebuild. But what is the basis of Daniel's petition for restoration and God's help? His own righteousness? His own discomfort? His own circumstances? His own desires? Look at verse 18, just... A marvellous verse, the second bit of verse 18. It says here, just turn over the page there. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Verse 19, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay. Because of your city and your people, who bear your name. God pray, Daniel prays according to God's glory, God's reputation, God's honour, which is tied up with the people. God has tied his reputation to the people. God has tied his reputation to the city. And Daniel is stirred that God's name is being marred amongst the nations because the people are scattered 
in exile. And he says in verse 15 about the exodus, you made a name for yourself which endures to this, name, to, to this day. So Daniel prays according to God's glory, not according to his comfort. In John 12, Jesus contemplating his painful death turns to prayer and he says, now my soul is troubled. Jesus, in a sense, was about to experience the exile. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I know it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is, must be the primary objective of all our prayers in the end. Father, I don't sometimes know the right thing here. I've got all these desires going on in my heart. I've got all these pulls around me. I've got, would you just glorify your name? That's my prayer. And I'm not even going to claim sometimes, Lord, I know what your, your will is, but would you glorify your name? You want to discover a center of gravity for all the pressures and temptations and of Babylon? Keep praying for the glory of his name, not your comfort. You want to discover a poise that means you can live in Babylon without retreating, without assimilating? Keep praying for the glory of his name. Let's learn to pray like Daniel, claiming the promises of God with our Bibles open reminding ourselves of his greatness and his love and asking for his glory above our safety, above our comfort, above our progression, above our ease. May he be glorified. And by the way, this prayer is private. Daniel 6, Daniel 9. This is, no one else knows about this prayer apart from we've got it in scripture. But it's also corporate. Daniel chapter 2, the, the friends gather together. And so we must learn a private and a corporate prayer life in Babylon. Each of us must find our private rhythms. For Daniel, it was three times a day. It was actually synced to the Jewish clock about the evening sacrifice. It was on his knees. His window was open. He was looking at Jerusalem. So you need to think, what is my time of private prayer? Where is it? Am I on my knees? Am I sitting? Am I on my bed? Is the window open? Daniel had thought these things through. Jesus says, when you pray, close the door. He says, you should make sure you're private. You've thought about your space. Find a space. Refind a space if you've lost it. Where's my time to be alone with my Father, to pray for his glory? Private prayer. But Daniel 2, and I guess this is recorded in Scripture, is about corporate prayer. How do you survive in Babylon? You gather as God's people together to pray. You prioritise and plan for corporate prayer. Corporate prayer in a church life is not like, yeah, I do this and that's an optional. Corporate prayer is the engine. Corporate prayer is the lifeline. Corporate prayer is how we survive. Corporate prayer is how we push back the powers of darkness. Corporate, brothers, corporate prayer is how we survive in Babylon and keep winning. Private prayer is essential. We pray in our Sunday. We pray in our city groups. But our corporate prayer and worship night once a month is a refuge to find stability. It's a power to find strength. It's an engine by which the church moves forwards. I encourage you, as you are able, as is possible with your schedule, and your commitments, prioritise and plan to come to the monthly prayer and worship night to be stabilised as a resident alien. Pray the scriptures, pray for God's glory, pray aware of God's greater purposes, verses 20 to 27. The interpretation of these verses are some of the most challenging and hotly contested in the whole Bible. What are the different numbers referring to? When do they start? When do they finish? Are they literal? Are they symbolic? I will not be a fool this morning 
and pretend I'm going to give you an answer. But I don't need to, because Daniel 9, and in fact, Daniel 7 to 12, which are fascinating uh, chapters, tell us two clear things. You don't need to get bogged down in the details, so you can have some fun there. There's two big ideas that Gabriel tells Daniel here and in chapter 7 that Matthew took us through. The first one is a warning. There are terrible times ahead for God's people. There will be more challenges ahead for God's people. Vindication is not now. There will be another ruler who will come that Matthew talked about, the little horn of chapter 7 who will destroy the city. And it says in verse 24, the anointed one will be killed. That's a prophetic statement about Jesus' death. What does it say about verse 24? To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness. This is a picture of the cross. The true temple is going to be destroyed, Jesus. He's going to be raised up three days later. So there is a prophetic moment about the anointed one. But it also says, verse 26, talks about war and floods and desolation. Language Jesus is going to use again in Matthew 24 when speaking to his disciples. And then right at the end of the chapter, we read these verse, words. He'll put an end to a sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up the abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him the abomination that causes desolation this or a similar phrase crops up four times in Daniel in these later chapters what is he referring to well like climbing a mountain there can be more than one peak of fulfillment when you get before you get to the top the first peak scholars seem unanimous is 167 BC the Syrian king Antiochus IV would be a little horn from chapter 7 who would blaspheme against the Holy One. He himself, in his arrogance, would give himself the title Epiphanes, which means God manifest. And in December 167 BC, in a final and supreme act of studied blasphemy, he'd rededicate the Temple of Jerusalem to the Greek Olympian god Zeus. He'd offer a pig on the altar. He would make the practice of Judaism illegal. He'd turn the rooms of the temple into brothels. Nothing like this had ever happened to the Jews before. He'd end all sacrifices, including the evening sacrifice, because he'd install a false god. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, particularly in chapter 5, with the gold cups and drinking the wine as a moment of blasphemy, and Darius had defied God, but no one had ever done anything like this. Antiochus is act of defiance was entirely in a new category. For the Jews, it was abomination upon abomination. And Jesus would pick up this phrase in Matthew 24, 15, when talking about the turbulent days that would follow his departure, when other anti-God rulers would come and shake their fist at heaven, and they would emerge and persecute the saints throughout history. So that brings us to the second fulfillment the temple was rebuilt, but then later again it was destroyed. AD 70, I've been to Rome and I've seen the Arc de Triomphe to the Roman Emperor Titus Vespasian. He destroyed the temple again. He reduced the city of Jerusalem to rubble. He killed a million Jews. He took captive a million Jews back as slaves. He built the Colosseum with the Jewish slaves, believe it or not. In the sec This was history repeating itself an anti-God ruler looking to destroy God's people and God's temple. And yet there are other peaks of fulfillment in the end times, the time between Jesus' departure and his return. Rulers would arise who would try and destroy the temple of God. Who were the temple of God? 
Who are the temple of God? I just listed the 10 most dangerous nations to be a Christian. Anti-God rulers who will try and destroy the temple of God throughout history. John talks about the Antichrist. Paul talks about the man of lawlessness. People that would arise and cause great harm to the church. What we see in Daniel chapter 1 to 6 with the despotic rulers. And what we see in chapter 7 to 12 with these visions of future evil beastly powers arising is the pattern of history before the time comes when Jesus returns. There will be terrible times for the church, the new temple of God. So Gabriel warns Daniel and Jesus warns the church, persecution and suffering are your lot. Sometimes Babylon will rear its ugly head in very ugly ways. We should not be surprised. We should not be panicked. We have been warned. But then secondly, there's a great reassurance. God has a greater purpose in mind. Why did God send Gabriel to Daniel? Whenever there's an angelic visitor, there's a reason to reassure him, to let him know that although there was going to be terrible times, Almighty God had not lost control of the earth. To let him know that while Daniel was praying, he was listening. And to let him know that even though after 70 years the exile would be over and they'd go back and they'd rebuild the temple, God had an even bigger vision in mind that Daniel could not have contemplated in the 6th century. Sinclair Ferguson put it like this. For 70 years, Daniel had longed for the restoration of the city and the temple of God. Now that it was about to take place, his attention was directed to an even more distant, loftier peak in the history of redemption. Even a new temple in a rebuilt city made by human hands could be destroyed. Daniel's eyes were therefore to be fixed on a final temple, one that would be beyond desecration. Revelation 18.2 tells us a mighty voice will one day say, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. One day Babylon and all the evil rulers and all the earthly kingdoms will fall. And those like Daniel that have remained steadfast in exile, not giving in to the intimidation, not giving in to the seduction, will be welcomed to an eternal city that will never be destroyed whose foundations were put in place by the great architect God. We'll be welcomed in. We'll be home. We won't be resident aliens. We won't feel the, the challenge of, uh, do I have to retreat? Do I? We'll be home. We can just be ourselves. We'll be gathered to God's people who've been scattered all over the world and all throughout history, some facing incredible persecution to the cost of their lives, some facing incredible seduction to be pulled in by the powers of wealth, and, 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 and political power. But the battle will be over and we'll rest. Yes, there are terrible times ahead as we live as resident aliens in Babylon, but there's a great reassurance that we'll be welcomed home to the eternal city of God. As we pray, be aware of a greater purpose that's happening throughout history that you're a part of, that in Christ your destiny is secure and the church, well, he says he's going to build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the greater purpose. So how do you remain steadfast as a resident alien in Babylon? How do you stay poised? How do you find the center of gravity? Pray the scriptures. Pray with your Bible open. Pray for God's glory above your own safety. And pray aware of the greater purposes of he has for the church. 
We've said this a few times, haven't we? And it leads us to communion. The book of Daniel points us to the true Daniel. When facing Satan and his beasts in the wilderness, how did he send to himself? He had his Bible open, Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone, but the very word of God. When contemplating the ultimate showdown with Satan and his beasts, they were taken to his cross. What was his motivation? Father, save me from this hour. No, Father, glorify your name. What was the joy set before him? The greater purpose that he knew he was fulfilling on that beastly cross. He was building a temple not built by human hands, but by the Spirit. And for all ages that temple would endure. And so Hebrews says, Now consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart as you live as a resident alien in Dublin today. Let's consider him now as we come to the table. Oh, our great and awesome God, we do praise you that over these last nine or ten weeks you've fed us richly from the book of Daniel. We have been nurtured, we've been encouraged, we've been inspired, we've been challenged. Your word has come to us and we've felt its, its point in our hearts. And Father, we long to be resident aliens that don't give in and that don't run away. And we want to be aware of the powers of Babylon at work and we want to be stabilised as we develop rhythms of prayer personally and corporately that keep us centred on you. I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here today who know that they're being pulled around and some feel they've maybe lost that battle and others feel like they're just trying to survive that you would today, even now as we respond, as we fix our eyes on you, as we've had the scriptures open, as we sing to your glory. And as we once again remind ourselves of your greater purpose in history that we get caught up in, that you'd stabilize us afresh for our battle, for our Babylon, to help us to be resident aliens in our city, that we might do good as Daniel did good in his. So we thank you, Father, and we praise your name. Amen.